This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hey, Rob Bradford here. You guys know I'm always up for a good MVP story, and one of the best stories is Wasabi Technology. Wasabi is the world's hottest cloud storage company, and it's become the go-to provider for professional and collegiate sports teams, including 20 major league baseball teams like the Red Sox and NHL teams like the Bruins and Vancouver Canucks. Even the Liverpool Football Club is getting in on the Wasabi action. So why is Wasabi the MVP? Well, Wasabi was purpose-built to free businesses from skyrocketing storage costs and unpredictable transaction fees that the Amazons the world are charging. In fact, Wasabi is up to 80% less than those hyperscalers and doesn't charge a cent for businesses to access their data. From Wasabi's AI-enabled intelligent media storage, Wasabi Air, to the industry's only cloud storage service with triple protection against cyber criminals, data deletion, and ransomware, Wasabi's taking the lead in driving innovation in data storage and helping sports teams to unleash the power of their data. Wasabi, another Boston-based channel championship team it's the amazing rico bronia podcast with your host evan roberts rico bronia time Mets lose two out of three to the cincinnati reds uh i don't know how much people care or how much watching has been done over the last few days but it was a productive few days we got to see ronnie mauricio play a little third base we did get to see the Mets win a game on a Sunday. Pete Alonzo hit another home run. Daniel Vogelbach's putting up some numbers. Uh, but overall, the Mets lose two out of three to the Cincinnati Reds. A lot to get to. We'll go through each game. We'll talk about Mauricio's debut at third base, the extremes of Francisco Alvarez this season, and a tribute to Bartolo Colon. And also a really interesting email about a decision the Mets have made over the last five years that may have turned out to be a very, very bad decision. So a lot to get to on the Rico. We'll start with the Friday night game. The Friday night game featured a quality performance by David Peterson. That's how I would describe it. He was pretty good over the first five innings. The Mets couldn't hit. They're down one nothing, And then Peterson makes the one big mistake in the sixth inning. Gives up the two-run home run to make it 3 nothing. Can't get through the sixth inning. Actually gets bailed out by Grant Hartwick, who came in with a couple of guys on base. So overall, I thought Peterson was all right. Five and two-thirds innings, three runs. One of the runs was unearned on a little bit of a miscue by Ronnie Mauricio, which we'll get to. Um, got a lot of swing and misses. That was a positive. But I don't think this performance did anything to kind of change our feel for him. He's been pretty good since the recall. He should not be in the rotation next year. I remain intrigued about him as a left-handed option out of the bullpen. But let's get to this bullpen. Because over the last few weeks, and we've even talked about it, each reliever has taken turns coughing a game up. And on Friday night, if you played Grant Hartwig in your Mets bullpen bingo card, you'd be the winner. Because after Hartwig got through that sixth inning, hats off to him. Our favorite Met, Pete Alonso, hits a game-time dramatic three-run home run. 
And it's funny, as he was coming up in this spot, I was thinking about Pete. Not about his contract, not about him long term, but really, what kind of season has Pete Alonso had? It's been a weird year. The batting average sucks. We all know that. But 45 home runs, 112 RBIs, you can't sneeze at. I mean, that's a, that's a damn good year. But the other part I was thinking about was the Mets have had, or the Mets had a terrible season. The season spiraled in the month of June. And in the middle of that spiraling was Pete Alonso. Let's be honest. Pete missed some time because he got hit by a pitch by Charlie Morton. He comes back, probably rushed his way back. If, if he did, it doesn't matter. He wanted to come back great and did not perform. And in the midst of the Mets' struggles, Pete did very little. That's not to put the Met collapse on Alonzo. He was just a main contributor. So you think back to the 45 home runs, 112 RBIs, and you start to question, well, how clutch was it? I think it was relatively clutch. I mean, if you go back and break down every home run and every RBI, he certainly had some big moments. Certainly there were some that just kind of added on to the stat sheet, but everybody does that. Like, I think if you go back to Barry Bonds' 73 home run season, not every home run was going to be clutch. But I was going through my mind. It's worth a deep dive, and I think I'll do one during the offseason. What kind of year did Pete have? I think his defense has continuously gotten better, and he's played first base just about every single day. I think he's only DH'd five or six games this season, and why not? Who the hell else are you sticking over at first base? God knows Daniel Vogelback's not going over there. Mark Canna did it a little bit earlier this season when Pete was hurt. So overall, and I think we all have to answer this question, what kind of year did Pete have? Was it a great year? Was it an A-plus season? I guess you could say that based on the numbers. Was it a, yeah, it was good. It's got some big numbers, but overall, didn't hit for high enough average. All or nothing kind of year. Was it a non-clutch year? Was it a clutch year? I think we all need to kind of determine with a grade what kind of year Pete had. We'll do that after the season. But as I'm thinking about this, Pete hits a three-run home run. And despite it being the middle of September in a series in which the Mets are buried, you're down 3 nothing in the bottom of the sixth inning. That's a clutch home run. That's how I look at it. It's a clutch home run. May not be clutch for a pennant race, but in the context of a game, you're getting shut down by Hunter Green. You're down 3 nothing. You're demoralized a little bit because you just gave up a two-run home run an inning earlier that took a one nothing game and made it 3 nothing. that's a big hit. So Pete hits the bomb, crowd's pumped up, Pete's pumped up, and what happens in the top of the seventh inning? Grant Hartwig takes the mound after he pitched a nice bottom of the sixth, got the final out to bail David Peterson out, and what does he do? The first pitch he throws to Luke Maley, he drills him right, right away. And not one of those good drillings, you know, one of those, yeah, revenge drillings. No, no, no. You just tied the game. It's the sixth inning, or now it's the seventh inning, and the first pitch you throw to Luke Maley, the ninth place hitter with the top of the order coming up, is to drill him. I knew the game was over. I mean, that's, that's, let's all be honest with ourselves. That's the baseball game right there. Faces Jonathan India. 2-2 pitch, goodbye to left center field, and this game was over. They did have a rally in the bottom of the seventh inning that got short-circuited, but it turns into just another August-September loss, which a lot of them can be defined by decent starting pitching performance, not a lot of offense, but the bullpen gives it up. And in the case of Friday night, the bullpen giving it up 
was the great Grant Hartwig. Another guy, another guy who better not be in this bullpen next year. He's going to be one of those guys that goes to spring training. He's got a chance for that final bullpen spot. But haven't we all seen enough? I know I've seen enough. I think I could say that about everybody Everybody in this bullpen. So Mets lose the opener 5-3, the Alonzo home run, their on, they're only offense. The big positive going into this game was Ronnie Mauricio, was the fact that the Mets finally made the decision. And finally, it's only been two and a half weeks, but still to me, it's a finally. We need to evaluate Ronnie Mauricio everywhere. So it was never too early for moving him around the diamond. So they play Ronnie Mauricio at third base in this game. Jeff McNeil's back at second. They've got Vientos DHing. Obviously, Beatty's a little banged up with the groin issue. And he was, and I want to evaluate the two games that he played at third base because I'll get him confused in terms of when a play happened. You had the Alvarez pickoff play in which Alvarez is trying to pick off the runner at third base, makes the throw to third, and Mauricio just has no idea to come over and cover. So that's a little bit of a mental mistake by Mauricio, which mental mistakes aren't going to annoy me as much because he's learning the position. You know what I mean? Like he hasn't played a lot of third base. When you look at his position splits down to the minor leagues, he's done it very few times. That's why he's got to be out there. That's why these mistakes now, as much as, hey, maybe I want to see my team win on a Friday or Saturday night, it ain't the end of the world. I'd rather see these mistakes now than in April of next year. There was one play he didn't make as well, a tougher one, a ground ball to third base he couldn't come up with. I, I don't know. It's such a short period of time, two games, to really evaluate him. I do know that he's looked smooth at second, so I think it's easy to say he looks better at second base than he does third. But a lot of this is going to come down to knee. It's going to come down to who's in the lineup next year. Ronnie Mauricio's hit in the short sample size of being up here. Ronnie Mauricio said, and I mentioned this last time on the Rico, I don't think any of us want to over-exaggerate about what we see in September, but in the case of Ronnie, we're not. We're evaluating the entire season. Now, Ronnie Mauricio hit in AAA. Ronnie Mauricio hit in AA. Ronnie Mauricio hit in winter ball. Like everywhere he's been over the last year plus, the guy's gone out and hit. So when I talk about Mauricio maybe earning himself that opportunity to be an everyday player next year. I don't say it based on a couple of weeks at the major league level where he's looked good. By the way, double A was two years ago. He started off at triple A this year, but he hit a triple A. I don't even think he hit that much at double A last year. That's what's funny about his rise. <coughs> Excuse me. A year ago when he was in double A, he had like decent numbers, but not nearly the kind of numbers he put up this year at AAA Syracuse and what he did in winter ball and obviously what he's done over a small sample size here at the major league level. But when I say it's going to be need, here's why third base may ultimately be the need. The Mets have never shown an interest in playing Jeff McNeil at third base. We haven't seen him play a lot of third base. So if Beatty and Vientos are not earning the third base job, and the Mets aren't going after a guy like Matt Chapman. I don't think they are. Position-wise, it may end up making more sense for Mauricio to be the third baseman. So I want to see him out there a lot over the next couple of weeks, the final few weeks that we have. He's probably going to play winter ball. I know they just announced there's going to be a winter ball series at City Field, which is kind of cool. 
a baseball series at City in the middle of November, which I'm very intrigued by. I hope he plays a lot of third base in winter ball. Because even though, yeah, in the small sample size we've seen, he's looked better at second, and maybe that's his best position. It's it's so tough to judge because he just hasn't played a lot all over the place. We need to see more. Here's the breakdown, by the way, from AAA this year. He played his most games this year at second base. He played 56 games at second base. The second position he played the most at is pretty close between two. He played 27 games at shortstop. 26 games in left, DH'd six games, and played, you ready for this? Two games at third base. Two. 17 innings in the minor leagues at third base. When he was playing in winter ball this past winter, he played 27 games at shortstop and nine games at third base. So his experience as a professional, since the Mets signed him as a 17-year-old, would be seven in winter ball, two at AAA this year, and two this weekend at the major league level. So that's 11 games at third base. That's why, you know, he doesn't come over and cover third on a Alvarez attempt to pick a runner off. He doesn't make a couple of plays. It's I'm not, not going to bury the guy. He clearly looks better at second, but it's such a small amount of time. I was glad that book put him out there on Saturday night. We saw a typical Tyler McGill performance. I'm almost starting to think that every time Tyler McGill takes the mound, and and, and this is sort of a compliment, but not really. Yes, it's a backhanded compliment. He's not going to be bad. He's not going to be awful. He's going to keep you in the game. His final line, if you just look at innings and runs, will be okay. But he's going to put a country on base. That's what McGill's going to do. And he'll get through it, and he'll be okay. And you'll walk away from it saying, eh, okay, I guess that's acceptable for a fifth or sixth starter. And that's exactly what he did Saturday. He gave up nine hits. He walked two guys, 11 base runners in five and two thirds innings, and he's able to fight through it and only give up two runs. So from that standpoint, good job by Tyler McGill. Good job by him. Uh, Mets got a run early in this game. How'd they get that run early? I'm trying to remember now. That's a problem when I don't score every single game or have the scorecard right in front of me. My my memory is not as good as I think it's been in the past. But either way, they took an early one nothing lead in this game. McGill quickly gives it up. They go down 3-1. to one. They come back, score a run in the fourth inning of this game. And then after that, the offense was just, was just none. It was absolutely shut down. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. 
With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly, so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The positive, and I do think it was a positive watching this, is the fact that Francisco Alvarez was batting second. And Francisco Alvarez ripped an RBI double in the fourth inning of this game. It's when they were down 3-1. to one. See, I, I do remember some things. And he tied the game, or didn't tie the game, but cut the deficit from 3-1 to one to 3-2. to two. And he was behind in the count. And it's just good to see Alvarez have those kinds of at-bats. Because his season, and I wanted to touch on this, has been so abnormal. Like, we're going to see his final numbers, especially for those that have kind of checked out over the final month of the season. You're going to look at his final numbers. You're going to remember some of the clutch home runs he had in the middle part of this season. And I think overall, the feeling towards Francisco Alvarez, rightfully so, is going to be positive. I think we're going to view <coughs> excuse me, his rookie season as an overall positive. His numbers right now are sitting at 219, 23 home runs, 54 RBIs. So a lot of home runs, low batting average, uh, but I think we'll remember a lot of the clutch hits. But he has been as extreme as I think we've seen from anybody in terms of his hotness into his slumping. It has been absolutely massive since the moment he was called up. Like, think about it. He gets called up, after Narvaez gets hurt relatively early in the season, doesn't play all the time, and he hits very, very little. Think back earlier in the season to that Josh Hader strike, how he looks overwhelmed. In fact, in the month of April, he hits 194 with a 494 OPS. Really, really bad, but his defense looked good. Listen to these numbers in May. And these numbers can be cut to be, to be more extreme because calendar months are just arbitrary. Like, sometimes a hot streak will last into the first few days of the following month. But in the month of May, 292, seven home runs, 1,029 OPS. That's when we all fell in love with them. That's when every home run was a clutch home run. In June, his average goes back down to 151 with a 534 OPS, four home runs, seven RBIs. July. This is a roller coaster, man. I got a headache even thinking about it. July, 275, eight home runs, 974 OPS. Now we go to August. Probably his worst month as a major leaker. 139 average, one home run, 456 OPS. In September, 300 batting average, two home runs, 982 OPS. 
he has been such an extreme every other month kind of player. So it leads to this question. Why? Why? Uh, okay, great. You've explained, Evan, that he's good one month, sucks another month, good another month. Is it just simply streakiness or is there a reason? As we've noticed over the last few weeks, the Mets have made a decision to cut down on his playing time. We don't bitch about it as much because it is late in the season. The season's going nowhere. And I think we've accepted, okay, fine, let the guy play every other game. And that's what they've done. And they've done this now for about three weeks, I think, about three and a half weeks or so, where it's Narvaez, it's Alvarez, it's Narvaez, it's Alvarez. And now he's red hot again. So is it possible that he was just burned out? Like, is that a possibility? Whenever you ask a question like this, there's no answer. Like, there's no real answer because none of us know. The Mets don't know. I don't know. You don't know. We could all speculate. We could all try to figure it out. Even Francisco doesn't know. I'm sure he doesn't have an answer for why he's been so streaky. But I like the fact that he's gotten hot now. That's a great sign. That's why that RBI double Saturday night, that made it 3-2. to two. Little did I know the Met offense would do nothing over the next six innings, even though they got Abbott out of the game, the red starter. The red bullpen, lockdown, tip your hat, whatever. I don't usually say that, but I guess in mid-September, 10 games under 500, I say that. I tip my hat, whatever. But why has this happened with him? And if it is him being burnt out, should that change how he's handled next year? As much as we scream every day, every day, every day, if that's a possibility, if we examine and re-examine 2023, and overall, Alvarez, fine year. I think we'd all give him positive grades. He's been really good defensively. He has shown leadership skills. Let's face it. You know, how many times have we seen him run out with the pitch count at one? How much have we seen him put his hand around a pitcher and take command? Like, there are so many great signs from Francisco Alvarez as a rookie besides what he's done offensively. So, great year. I think we'd all agree. But if we examine the why to the streakiness, and they really think possibly burnout's a possibility, which him hitting in September, I don't want to say it backs it up, but it gives you some evidence that maybe it was that playing every other day certainly helps. What does that mean in 2024? Omar Narvaez will probably be on this team. Omar has a player option for next season. Next year, Omar Narvaez is scheduled to make $7 million. He's made $8 million this year. It is a player option. I'm going to assume he accepts it. That'd be my assumption. <coughs> and by the way, I hope he does. I really do, because you're going to want another pretty good catcher on this team. It doesn't mean I want Alvarez starting only 95 games next year or anything like that, but you know there are going to be days where you need to rest him, especially if there's any thought that burnout has somehow contributed to this. Omar has not had a good year when he's played. So based on that, I assume he'll opt in on a $7 million deal. But I don't mind Omar Narvaez coming back. I mean, would you prefer him or Tomas Nito? Would you prefer him or bringing back James McCann, who the Mets are still playing next year? What I would give thought to is if there is concern about burnout, being a little bit more aggressive in DHing him next year. Like Francisco Alvarez has not been used very often as a DH this season. In fact, if you had to guess right now, we'll play a game at home. 
How many times has Francisco Alvarez DH'd in 2023? And what I mean by that is starting as DH because pinch hitting for Daniel Vogelback late in the game to me does not count. Staying in the game as a DH does not count. And that just means you're pinch hitting for whoever started, which is likely Vogelback against the lefty, even though Alvarez has not hit lefties. The answer to the question is three. Three times all year. So obviously that has not been something that they have done a lot with him this year. Is that something they should consider doing more of next year? Obviously the makeup of the roster is going to say a lot in that. Who the right-handed DH is going to say a lot in that. But in order to try to keep him relatively fresh, it's definitely worth considering. As far as the rest of that game two is concerned, our boy Pete had a chance to be a hero. Ninth inning, two on, two out. One of the rare chances the Mets had against the Reds bullpen. They really got locked down after they got Abbott out of the game and Pete grounds out. Very disappointing. Disappointing ending. I was envisioning another one of those clutch Alonzo home runs that we could put down on the list when we're debating if he's had a clutch year or not. As far as Sunday's game is concerned, I guess some people may have watched it. The Giants didn't kick off till four. Jets didn't kick off till 425. But another really solid performance from Jose Quintana, which I'm happy about. But as I've mentioned on past Rico's, you start to look at his injury as one of the bigger reasons that had this season derailed. Quintana going down and not pitching until they were basically out of it. Buck made an interesting call. 4-2, first and third, two outs, still a game, and he goes to Drew Smith. Almost as if Buck was playing bad Met reliever bingo and said, all right, I'm going to go with Drew Smith as the guy that blows this game up. But much to the surprise of all of us, he got DJ Friedel to fly out the right field. Who the hell saw that one coming? And the Mets win game three of this series. They salvage the finale. Daniel Vogelback rips a bases-clearing double. I got good news about Daniel Vogelback. I was looking at who's under contract next year, who's due to make what next year, and who's a free agent. And the Mets don't have a lot of free agents. Last year was so different. I mean, think about the pods we were doing in the offseason. Brandon Nimmo is a free agent. Jacob DeGrom is a free agent. Edwin Diaz has a free agent. It was prominent. Chris Bassett is a free agent. Taiwan Walker has a free agent. Did I say DeGrom? Did I say Nimmo? Edwin Diaz? Yeah, a lot, a lot of big free agents. This year, there are not a lot of big free agents. I mean, obviously, we're going to have big questions about this team, specifically if they're going to trade Pete Alonso or not. But Daniel Vogelback is a free agent. He is... He's done at the end of this season. There's no more arbitration left. He's not making a million and a half. And I would predict to you, I would be stunned if this guy is back. So even when he adds the bases clearing double on a Sunday afternoon against the Cincinnati Reds, I would not fear that somehow that hit is going to cause the Mets to say, you know what we should do? We should bring Daniel Vogel back back. Like, I do think the era has ended for him. It did not work out. He somehow made it through the last year and a half. I will warn you, though, as much as I don't think he'll be back, and I don't, Daniel Vogelback did play for the Milwaukee Brewers back in 2020 and 2021. So there is a connection. <laughs> there is a David Stern connection. Now, he also let him go. So you could look at it that way, too. 
<laughs> now nah, I think we're done with him. I think we're done with him. Another good play by DJ Stewart, by the way. Couple of sliding catches. Had that catch on Sunday where he was blocking the sun out. I'm so impressed by DJ Stewart's defense in right field. I am. Because I, I think the stereotype is to look at him, especially in spring training, and say, oh, he may hit some home runs, but he's going to be a crappy fielder. He's actually not a bad fielder. So Mets win the finale of this series. They end up losing two out of three to Cincinnati. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. All right, a couple of other things. Let me get to Cologne. I do not dislike Bartolo Cologne. Like Bartolo Cologne. I remember when the Mets signed him as a free agent. I debated with friends on which starter they should sign. I was more on the Phil Hughes side. Some were on the Bartolo Colon side. And going into the 2014 season, the Mets decided to sign Bartolo Colon, who was a Met for three years. And I'll always give him credit for this. Bartolo Colon, for three years as a New York Met, at the ages of 41, 42, and 43, took the baseball every five days and pitched. I admire him for that. And his best season was 2016. Think about that. And, and Hear out the innings of Cologne's three years here at 41, 42, 43. 202, 194, 191. Impressive. Bartolo Cologne was a very solid Met. He lived up to his contract. He was far better than I ever expected him to be. He was also lovable, no doubt. You know, big fat guy swinging, helmet falling off, looking awful at the plate, but working his tuchus off to get better offensively, and then somehow actually becomes, I don't ever want to say a good hitter, but respectable enough where he had that moment in San Diego where he hit a home run. Like, that's amazing. Because the first year he was here, he was two for 62 at the plate. Think about that. Two for 62? That That's almost impossible. And then the following year, he goes eight for 58. All of a sudden, he's like, not that that's good, but it's certainly a lot better than what he started with. So I have no ill feel, will towards Bartolo Colon. He had a couple of embarrassing things in his career. Number one, he was a steroid guy. I don't know how much people care about that anymore. Number two, he lived a double life. Remember that story? That He had, he had like a second family that his first family never knew about. With all that said, I don't get the love affair. I don't get how this guy retires a Met despite, you know, pitching how many years in Cleveland and doing it in the postseason, even having some success with Anaheim. I, I, I know those fan bases may not necessarily love him, but when you look at his career, he's not a Hall of Famer, but if he was, <laughs> if, if they created a Hall of halfway decent, a Hall of, hey, that guy won a Cy Young once. Nobody would consider him a Met. Good Met, by the way. Again, very good Met. I feel like I have to say that. But the love affair still surprises me. Even all these years later, even now, how many years has it been since this final year, 2016? So what is that, seven years now? T-shirt for him. 
Don't got the final pitch. He's retiring a Met. I'm not mad about this by any stretch. I'm laughing at it. I don't get it. So I'm not, you know, bitching about it or it doesn't bother me. I'm just, I'm kind of, I I smile at it. Like, oh, okay. Guys love Bartolo Colon. Does everybody love Bartolo Colon? And I appreciate him. If you ask me, hey, Bartolo Colon, what do you think about? I, I think a little bit about the home run, obviously, but I think about, hey, that guy was a good Met. That guy signed a three-year deal, and he lived up to every dime. He took the baseball every five days. You cannot say that about a lot of guys in the history of this franchise. You can't say this about a lot of pitchers that we love in the history of our franchise, that they took the baseball and pitched every five days. But the infatuation with him, fascinating. Is there anybody else we're just so crazily fascinated by? But he, hey, throughout the first pitch, Brandon Nimmo caught it. I think that's the one guy left who he was a teammate with. Got a nice ovation. If you went to the game on Sunday, you got that cool T-shirt. <laughs> and I'm not laughing at anybody. Like I get it if you like them. It just still surprises me. And I've always thought that. Like the, the fatuation with Bartolo Colon has always been, you know, sort of interesting. Uh, let me get to a couple of emails, including one that brings up a very interesting question about a Met decision that they've made over the last few years. But let me start with this from Ed. Love the show. I have two questions. The first one is, do you think Kodai Singh will be different than Tanaka? What I mean is, if I recall correctly, Tanaka was awesome year one and kind of fell off the year after. He wasn't bad, but never as dominant in the regular season. Senga looks like an ace in year one. Side note to his stats against the Diamondbacks this year in two starts. Fordings pitched one earned run, three walks, 22 Ks, an ERA of .64. He's their daddy. Yes. Do you think we get a similar drop-off from Senga, or do you think the Mets can avoid that, or do you think Senga's better? I think that, and we, and I did this too, by the way, we always try to compare Japanese pitchers with other Japanese pitchers. And your point about Tanaka is well taken in that when he first came over his rookie season, he was incredibly dominant. But there was something that happened besides the league getting used to him. Remember, he then pitched the next couple of years with a partially torn UCL. Was that a part of what made Tanaka not as good as he was in his first year? And I don't think if Senga, I got to pull up Tanaka's numbers to look, but off the top of my head, I would tell you, if you told me that Senga's going to give me Tanaka's numbers from year two to year six or however many years he pitched in the major leagues, I think I'd be all right with it. I know he wasn't as good as his first year, but he was still a really good, dependable starting pitcher. I hear his numbers. Year one, he made 20 starts because, again, he got hurt. 13 and 5, 277 ERA and 20 starts. Struck out nine and a half, only walked 1.4. So his walks were way down compared to Senga. Year number two, 24 starts again. Did start that wild card game against the Astros, pitched well. 3 5 ERA. Year three, 199 innings, most innings he ever threw in the majors. 307 ERA. Here's where it gets a little murky. Year four, 30 starts. 474 ERA. Uh, year five, 27 starts, 375. And then his last full year in the major leagues, 2019, 2020, you kind of throw out 
2019, 4-4-5 ERA, 32 starts. He was dependable. He was solid. I would say more it was year four where the drop-off really began. Because I'd be good with year two and three. Like, if you, if Kodai Senga, from an ERA standpoint, gave me 3-5 ERA, 3-0-7 ERA, and he goes out and makes 60 starts in the next two years, I, I, I'd be good with it. I'm sure there are some Met fans thinking, I want more. I want him to win a Cy Young. Sure, I'd, I'd love for him to win a Cy Young, and he's had a great rookie season. But I think year two and three of Tanaka were really good. Where I wouldn't be happy is year four, five, six. That's when the, 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 the drop-off really came. But I'll give you another guy to look at who's had a very long career at the major league level right now, and that's you, Darvish. <laughs> now, you came over a couple years earlier in terms of age, but you, Darvish's first year in America, he made 29 starts to 190 innings. So he went out and pitched, had a 3.9 ERA. Following year, 280 ERA, 209 innings. So it wasn't something like, oh, the league got up, got, got used to you. He ended up having Tommy John year four, took a few years really to recover. And then 2020 had the dominant year, average year 21, really good year 22. He's had a very average year in 2023. Hey, you know what? That's normal for pitching. Look around baseball this year. Look at the guys who have had great years. Look at the guys who had great years. And what they're doing this year, Sandy Alcantara certainly being a great example. I would sign for really the most important thing, kind of piggies back what we were saying with uh, Bartolo, make the starts. You go out and you make 30 starts, you pitch to a 3-3 ERA, I'd be really thrilled. <coughs> All right, here's the good question from Jimmy that we need to think about. Jimmy had some comments about the Reds. I'm going to leave that part out. Then he writes, Seth Lugo was a homegrown Met pitching prospect. He spent seven years with the team, consistently voicing his desire to start, which fell on deaf ears. The Mets let him go this offseason, and while he hasn't been an ace, he's made 24 starts, he has a 380 ERA in 130 innings, he would be second only to Senga in every pitching category on the Mets. I wasn't a Seth Lugo fan. I didn't weep when he left, but I did look up his contract with the Padres. Two years, $15 million. Perhaps Epler's biggest failure affecting the 23 Mets wasn't spending $7.5 a year on a homegrown Met who proved he could pitch in New York and had a desire to prove himself as a starter. Thanks for hanging in with us. All right. I think the Lugo question is fascinating. And Hoff brought this up earlier this season. You know, hey, did we make a mistake letting Seth Lugo go? Let's not have alternate history here. So Seth Lugo comes up in 2016 when the Mets are devoid of pitching because everybody got hurt. Remember, Matt Harvey's hurt. Jacob DeGrom is hurt. Zach Wheeler is hurt. The only healthy guy was Noah Syndergaard and Bartolo Colon. So Lugo's in the rotation. Robert Gazelman's in the rotation. It's a very small sample size, but at eight starts, Seth Lugo does a tremendous job, okay? We're all good with him getting another opportunity the following year. Following year, Lugo makes 18 starts, not good. ERA of 4-7. Mets make a decision in 2018, hey, you know what we should do? We should make him a relief pitcher. Again, Lugo goes into the bullpen and shows signs of dominance 
Remember, the Mets had an issue in usage with him. Like, he would pitch great two innings at a time, and then he wouldn't be available for a couple of days. And that was the biggest negative about him. But he showed a lot of dominance as a reliever. Same thing in 2019, where I was convinced as a fan, hey, this guy's a reliever. That's where he's at. 2020, they did a little bit of both. He wasn't very good. 2021, and I agreed with the Mets, despite Lugo wanting to be a starter, the Mets say, hey, this guy looked like a dominant reliever at times in 19 and 18. Forget 2020. That year don't make any sense. He's a reliever. The problem was in 21 and 22 is Seth Lugo was a very average reliever. To me, he had two Met careers as a reliever. 17 and 8, I'm sorry, 18 and 19, where he looked at times dominant, and 21 and 22, where he was your typical average relief pitcher. Typical. He's just, nobody trusted him. (laughs) He would give up big hits in a big spot. He was not a lockdown guy. He was an average reliever. At that point, with the Mets now for seven years, did any of us have an urge to make him a starting pitcher? When Seth Lugo gets to free agency and clearly wants to be a starter, and there are teams willing to say, hey, you're going to be in the rotation. Did any of us want him to be in the rotation? The Mets, and it wasn't one guy, because think about all the different people that ran the Mets over the last five years, whether it's Brody Van Wagenen, whether it's Sandy Alderson, whether it's Jared Porter and Zach Scott, whether it's Billy Epler, they almost viewed him as a reliever to a T. And in the limited time he started, there were times he looked okay, but never enough to be convinced that guy's a starter. Seth Lugo has gone to San Diego and has been a very solid back of the rotation arm. If that's all he is, it's tough to regret it. Because what were the Mets going to sign him for? You know, think about what the rotation was supposed to be. Justin Verlander's here. Max Scherzer's here. Kodai Sangas here. Carlos Carrasco's here. They signed Jose Quintana. Like, what What were they going to do? Were they going to sign Lugo and say, you're a depth guy? He was never going to go for that. He wanted to be in the rotation. No regrets. But it's a great question. To me, no regrets. Because when I live the moment, when we all live the moment, and we all come to pretty much the same conclusion, it's tough to get mad when it doesn't work out. It's like when the Mets traded Angel Pagan. We're all done with him. <laughs> okay. The guy now starts to play well. We're all done with him. Travis Darno's the same thing. We Were we all not done with Travis Darno? You're done with that guy. With that said, could the Mets use a, another arm in the rotation? Could they have used <laughs> another arm in the rotation all season long? No doubt about it. And one last thing I want to get, because I saw this tweeted out by Codify. I think it is Codify. Codify MLB. They took a shot at our guy, Pete Alonso. Codify baseball. Because they showed a clip from the other day where Pete couldn't catch that pop-up, that foul pop-up that was right near home plate or behind home plate. (laughs) So in the clip, Pete misses it. Omar Narvaez puts his arm out to kind of help him up awkwardly. Pete clearly doesn't see him, but swats his arm away as he gets up on his own. So obviously that's tweeted out. It's like, oh, Pete didn't want any help. A couple of things about Pete. It is possible Pete saw it, and Pete was like, do not help me up. 
I don't think that's anti-Narvaez. I don't think that's anti-teammate. I don't think that proves he's a bad guy. I think it proves something we all know about Pete watching him every day. He's crazy intense. Crazy intense. And that has not always been a bad thing for baseball players. Paul O'Neill's been crazy intense. Yankee fans fantasize about him coming back. You know what I mean? We've seen Pete break bats off his knee because he's upset. I think he's a very emotional baseball player. I think that can be a bad thing if it turns into one in terms of pressing and not performing. I haven't seen that from him. So is it possible Pete saw him in the back of his eye and was like, F this, I'm getting up on my own? I guess. More likely than not, he didn't see him. And so it just is placed out on social media. And if you want to have an agenda or you have an agenda, it's easy to go with. We got to get Pete signed because I'm getting sick of this. <laughs> not that I'm trying to help him make millions of dollars. I think he did that on his own. But as a Met fan, I want this done. Because I do think that while in the moment, some Met fans may say, no, it's smart. They got prospects. Eh, doesn't it for a high enough average? What have we won with him? You know, all those stupid cliches. Letting him go, to me, is Daryl. Letting him go is Seaver. And maybe I felt that way emotionally about Jake, but it was different with Jake. And that pissed me off. There were legitimate concerns with Jake, health-wise, age-wise, years-wise. Those don't exist with Pete Alonso. Track record of health and a track record of mashing home runs every single year. But more on that, obviously, as the season rolls on. Mets have a series coming up with the Miami Marlins this week. They got four games over the weekend against the Philadelphia Phillies. So they continue this trend of playing teams who have relevant games, while we, on the other hand, finish out the string. Ain't it fun? You can email the pod, thericob at gmail.com. Thericob at gmail.com. We do appreciate you hanging in there during this awful, awful baseball season. Thank you for listening and downloading another edition of Rico Bronia. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Rico Bronia podcast. It's amazing, isn't it? Make sure you download it now to keep it on you at all times. <laughs>